Theorizing that primetime audiences were ready for a new time travel series, NBC and creator Donald Belisario debuted Quantum Leap on March 26, 1989. Starring Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, the series followed Dr. Sam Beckett for five seasons of time-hopping adventures, spawning novels, comics, and a fan base that has clamored for decades for a revival. Now, with Raymond Lee and Caitlin Bassett starring in a new version of the series that dangles just as many new threads as it does old ones, we'll ball the string up and explore the revival and the ways in which Quantum Leap has always entertained and inspired us here on... Oh boy. Oh boy, it's a Quantum Leap podcast. My name is Nate, and with me is a co-host who makes every second count. Ooh. It's Brian Martin. Hello, everybody. Brian, how good is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Across the Spider-Verse. We've talked, I think, in, as recently as the last episode about how the culture is moving towards the multiverse, right? Yes. Like, the multiverse is the next big thing. And, folks, as worn out as you might be hearing about the multiverse in MCU movies, Across the Spider-Verse, it's the, like mana from heaven, man. The creme de la creme of multiverse storytelling, I guess. Yeah, just when you think the tank is empty. I mean, everyone said it was great. So I forced myself sure. out of the house on the weekend to go see this movie. <laughs> and forced yourself out. I want to make it known that I left my house this weekend to go watch Transformers Rise of the Beast. <laughs> so that forcing do... myself out of the house to watch a movie is not a thing. <laughs> my uh, my point being is I have not made it out to see Ant-Man. I didn't see Guardians yet. I didn't Ooh. see Creed 3. I haven't seen John Wick. I said, it's time to start going back to movies, and I'm going to see all of these. Okay. And all right. I have not made it out to any of them, but I took my son to go see Spider-Man, and it just was better than expectations. Oh, it's, it's just it's... insane. Look, this is going to be a mild spoiler if you haven't seen the movie yet, but let's say if you don't want spoilers, skip to... Eight minutes, 13 seconds. But about 10 minutes into this movie, a version of the Vulture shows up. Oh my up. God, that was going to be mine. <laughs> I thought, let's each share a spoiler, a mild spoiler, and that was going to be mine. That is... But that's the moment, man. Like, the moment the Renaissance Vulture shows up, and the animation is legitimately, and I mean this sincerely, unlike anything you have ever seen before, and exactly what it should look like. Yeah. I, and then the movie continues. Like, it's not the end of the movie. You're yeah, like in the it doesn't first 15 minutes of the movie. It does not it stop. It keeps there, going. Yeah. The animation on Hobie, the spider punk. Yes. Which looks like the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bollocks album cover came to life. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I just don't know, man. I, yeah, I don't have How words. they managed yeah. to take everything that was great about Into the Spider-Verse and create a movie that raised the stakes that much. And yeah, I raised don't mean the bar. Necessarily, I don't mean necessarily in terms of characters and the story. I mean for animators everywhere. It's put something out there that's like, here it is, your move. 
Yeah, it's like the first movie was really creative. They used animation that you've seen before creatively to make it fresh and exciting, and it looked great. And this one is indescribable in a way that I like I've not seen this kind of thing. They take the way the color in Spider-Gwen's universe mm-hmm. is used to convey emotion. Mm-hmm. This is why we go to movies, folks. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't like this, if you were not moved by this, just check yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, the ability to blend all of those different styles and make it cohesive is just a master work. Because if anything, Hollywood's going to take the wrong approach and try to mimic this. And it's just going to come ever, up. Yeah. When have they ever done that? Well, the attempt to mimic this is going to create an absolute mess. Just like a big dog pile of vomit up on the screen. We may not even have to wait that long. The Flash opens this weekend, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just meant not necessarily the storytelling per se, but the different animation styles all seamlessly integrated the ability to do that it's going to be impossible yeah i think what you're saying is the disparate animation styles in this movie are all conceived and executed with purpose and there are going to be people or studios probably suits that see this movie and think we can make a movie that looks like that right that's what. but they're going to completely miss the point of why it looked like it did Right. And not even why, as much as being able to do that, having all of those different styles share the screen and make it feel like they all belong together. Like you said, Hobie's animation next to the 3D animation of even just your main character, the fact that they fit together at all is impressive, to say the least. They're definitely non-congruous. Right. They should not be stacked up against each other the way they are, but, like, they exist in the same frame together. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's just insane how well this movie works. And they don't just stop at that. It's an achievement in and of itself to do all that animation, but then to add on a story that has a heart. It's like, yeah. don't drop the ball in any facet of this storytelling. Raise the bar on every level. And just, just incredible. Like, yeah. And like I said, the vulture just, that was so cool. It looked so cool. Yeah, I mean, I I just, it's so inventive, but the most obvious route to take with this form of this character. Yeah. It was like they said, hey, let's do a renaissance version of this character. I dare you to animate it. Yeah. And somebody took that challenge and said, okay, bitch. We now, got it. that's not one that's pulled from the comics or anything, right? There's no prior... I don't know. I don't think there's a prior Renaissance vulture, to my knowledge, at the any rate. The only thing I could think of is if that character appeared in the series, what was it, 1692? 1602? 1602, that's it. Maybe. In the 1602 series and its spin And I would be looking towards the spinoffs because I don't believe... The Vulture appeared in the mainline book. Peter Parker was not a major character in that book. Right. But he did get a spinoff at one point. And I own the book. I cannot remember if the yeah. Vulture was in it. But it's Not uh, one I was familiar with. And it just sold me right away, you know. I, oh, yeah. But Incredible. Not the movie we were here to discuss, but I couldn't pass it up. Well, we've been talking a lot about multiverses and, and the success of a movie like Across the Spider-Verse. And the ongoing insistence of the MCU to pursue multiversal kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. 
I really do think, as I mentioned on the last episode, it's going to have a bearing on new Quantum Leap's desire to dip into that well at some point. Whatever scripts they already have in the bag, something has got to be multi-timeline, multiverse something. Sure, sure. But yeah, the movie we are here to discuss, we hinted at it last week. Source Code came out in 2011. I wonder how many people remember this movie. I was beginning to wonder how I remembered it. You don't hear a lot about Source Code. And we watched it again over the weekend. Nate, I think we're in agreement that more people should remember Source Code. Yeah, I'm excited to discuss this. And I hope people are excited to listen. Uh, I was chomping at the bit to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remembered, as you did, Source Code being a movie that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Source Code, 2011, sci-fi action movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Michelle Monaghan, Vera Farmiga, and Jeffrey Wright. Great cast. Yes, yeah. That's really the only four characters in the movie. There are a lot of characters that are on the train. That are kind of bit roles, but as far as your major characters... Yeah, the ones you need to pay attention to. That pretty well covers it. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal plays an army soldier named Coulter Stevens who awakens at the beginning of the movie on a train. His head against a window. Hey, we've all been there, right? <laughs> Michelle Monaghan's sitting across from him, and he's on a commuter train going into Chicago... Has no idea how he got there. Mm -hmm. Sean, she keeps calling him. Right. He's like, I'm not Sean. I don't know what you're talking about. He kind of has a freak out in the first seven minutes or so. I think it's about seven minutes. Yeah. Of this movie. (laughs) And then the train explodes. And the sequence repeats Mm -hmm. over and over and over again throughout the course of this movie. In the interim, in between these time jumps... Coulter is recalled back to some sort of science experiment that's kept fairly vague throughout most of the movie. His main point of contact is a character played by Vera Farmiga, Captain Goodwin, Mm -hmm. who informs him that he's part of an experiment and he's being sent back in time to prevent a future terror attack carried out by the same people. They have threatened a second attack. Yes. This agency, again, Captain Goodwin is a part of it. Jeffrey Wright is a character named Dr. Rutledge. He is clearly overseeing this project Mm -hmm. that involves, I don't know, let's call it time travel or leaping (laughs) into the past to try to discern information to prevent this terror attack from being carried out. Joan Hall's Coulter Stevens goes back to this same seven-minute period of time over and over and over again to try to determine who's carrying out the attack so that they might stop it later. Right. I remembered, like you did, that this took place on a train. (laughs) (laughs) I remembered that it was a causality loop kind of situation where it's like we're we're going through the same sequence of time over and over and over again. Yeah, I could... It's amazing that I even remembered this movie at all. In watching it again, it was pretty much like watching a brand new movie for me, which was wonderful. Yeah. And we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie, by the way. Oh, yeah, 100%. So go back and watch it prior (laughs) to listening, if you so choose. But the only image I had was of his body being kind of blown apart, you know. And for some reason, I had this image of him reacting to that. 
in my oh, mind. Oh, no, that never happens. And that never happens. <laughs> like, I remember, like, no. that was the image I had, and it's not even one that's in the movie. So I... That's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's really weird. What were you merging? You were merging two movies together there, I guess. I think but, um... at least two scenes from the movie, like when he first wakes up in the capsule... Like wondering where he was, and then oh, yeah, also, and he's kind of freaking out. Yeah, it was out. like that. The, like I conflated those two moments. At the end of the movie, you see his actual human body and what they're or operating. What's with. left of it? Yeah, yeah. So this is a very, very quantum leap adjacent movie. We tried not to talk too much about this over the weekend, right? It was hard. My response is. If a Quantum Leap movie was going to exist, this is 100% what it would be like. Yeah. There's no need for a sequel. The potential for a sequel exists, certainly. Sure. But as far as presenting a problem, resolving it through the use of time travel that involves a character entering the consciousness of another character in the past. Right. (laughs) I mean, baby, you got Quantum Leap here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you kind of hit on all of the notes that I've written down for myself here. The movie was directed by someone named Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. Now, do you know who Duncan Jones I is? I don't. I feel like you do. I, well, I you might. You don't. But I, here, here's the thing. I looked him up a little bit. It's directed by Duncan Jones and written by Ben Ripley. And what I found was that, and, and not everybody puts a lot of stock in Rotten Tomatoes, I personally view it as an aggregate, and there's definitely information there that's worth it. Doesn't necessarily mean a movie is all bad or all good. Sure. But I do like to use that as a metric because it's an aggregate of. It's a of, decent uh, yeah. barometer. What is a barometer exactly? It's pronounced thermometer. <laughs> Sucking your finger and sticking it up in the wind. Yeah. That's I, what Rotten Tomatoes is. I feel like it's useful. And some might say it's like sucking your finger and shoving it up a tiny bubble. <laughs> but uh, either way, I think <laughs> it's effective. I think it's worth pointing out this movie got a critic score of 92%. That's good. It's good. That's really good. Duncan Jones had one other movie break 40%. And Ben Ripley, mm-hmm. his highest other movie was at 46%. And his most recent one, Flatliners, oh is 4%. Yeah. Flatliners did not do well. So what that says to me is this movie is kind of out of nowhere. These guys have not had a lot of success outside of this movie from what I could tell. No, they should never have given Duncan Jones money. (laughs) It's like, because he went on to do like Warcraft. Yeah, you were going to tell me. So why should I know Duncan Jones? Well, I don't know that you should know him, but he is the son of David Bowie. Oh, okay. Okay. So so I don't know that that matters very much, but he is David Bowie's son. Okay. So I feel like that probably gets you some clout. Yeah, you, some nepotism. I move the stars for no one. Oh, sure, Nep- sure. I mean, Nepo like, baby. <laughs> Duncan Jones is to David Bowie as Jesus is to God. If we're talking about nepotism, then yeah. Jesus and Duncan Jones are probably on the same well, level. Well, with the... I have a very high regard for David Bowie. Let's yeah. just throw that out there. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> With the mild success of the rest of his filmography, yeah. he and Ripley both, it seems like this is kind of an aberration, and it kind of reminds me of True Detective on HBO. You know that guy spent the better part of a decade and a half working on that one story, and yeah. he finally got it picked up, and then it was phenomenal, and season two was just... And he couldn't pull yeah, it together again. he couldn't again. pull it together again. It's like yeah. they had this one idea, and it turned out really great, but that was 2011. 
and they can't we haven't all seen be Noah Hawley's, you know, yeah. Yeah. the Fargo guy, like every season. Everything he does is gold. You know? yeah. 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 Or the, the Yellowstone guy. <laughs> the hell or high water guy like he's big yeah um but they can't all be that right yeah but fortunately duncan jones did make source code now one thing i did discover about ben ripley's script on this is that it was written on spec oh so he was not commissioned to write it this was a true labor of love for him right okay yeah yeah and if anybody is wondering if there is a connection between ben ripley and quantum leap I think the answer is 100% yes. It's got to be, right? This guy wrote this script because he loved Quantum Leap. That has to be the case. Just too many similarities. The very first scene, the opening, is a leap in. I mean, it's a leap in. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It is the tease before an episode. Yeah, complete with the facing mirror image that was not his own. Yes. Yeah, you even get the mirror image sequence. It's Quantum Leap on the screen. You're absolutely right. I should say the opening shot is actually, they seem like drone shots, but this was prior to 2011. They weren't doing cameras. I guess they were all helicopter shots. They had to be helicopter shots, right? Yeah, they were helicopter shots uh, overhead of trains. Brilliant, long, brilliant shots, though. Yeah. They're actually brilliant shots because there's a lot of splitting track imagery and things Mm -hmm. like that that set up the sort of expectation coming up that what we're going to see is a narrative that suggests that history can splinter. Yes, right? right. And even when the main title pops up on screen, source code, you see that imagery again, sort of animated. I think the opening titles are really, really cool because they're very Hitchcockian to me. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of the opening titles for Psycho, actually, where there's just okay. this sort of audio track, the score that is creating this high-tension feeling before you've seen anything and there are these lines running across the screen that occasionally branch and it sort of sets the tension for the movie it sets in a subtle way the expectation for what the movie's going to be about because the title let's be honest source code does not tell you that much you get probably 30 or 40 minutes into the movie before you understand what that means what source code is right in relation to the plot. And I appreciate their attempts to put this into some kind of scientific principle or some kind of some kind of <laughs> nugget of a scientific sure. theory that somebody he may have come across at some point. Okay, like, that's being generous. That's very generous. <laughs> but you know how you, you'll get like a headline or something out of some science mag that, you know, like a theoretical idea, just the nugget of a theoretical idea. And then you just yes. kind of grab that and run with it. And like it's, it's sort it's, of we've talked previously about the ease with which Quantum Leap, the original series, explained the concept of the show Mm -hmm. you take a string one end is your birth one end is your death you tie the ends together you have a loop you ball it up in the days of your life touch out of sequence source code attempts to do something similar in a way more techno babbly kind of way right essentially and correct me if i'm wrong in the space essentially between when your brain dies (laughs) and your short-term memory ceases yeah. There is about seven minutes there. Eight minutes. I think you're shorting us a minute. Okay, I, I might be doing that. Eight minutes of time. And that is the time that source code exploits. Essentially, what this means is that Coulter Stevens can go back and enter the consciousness of a person that his brainwaves are relatively aligned with, mm-hmm. like Quantum Leap, right? right? And relive the last eight minutes of this person's life. 
leading up to the point where the train explodes and he dies. Yeah, it is awfully confusing. Gonna have to run with it in order to enjoy things, but like I'm not even a hundred percent sure. Do they like find Sean's body and like how do they this. even get his brainwave? Like I don't understand. What I'm led to believe is that they just tried to penetrate multiple people, and that's the only one that worked. I feel like it was just let's keep trying different people, and then like okay. But what do you even mean uh, there? Tra- like Sean Fentress worked. I don't even know how are they connecting to them. They'd have to catch them while that brain activity was still active, right? Sure. And grab the body, I guess, and plug them into each other or something. I don't think they did that. They didn't. I don't think they, they did didn't, that. Look, look folks, this is this is the sort of it. thing that only works because Jeffrey Wright is the actor explaining it. <laughs> if there was literally any other performer on screen explaining it, he plays the exact same character in Bernard on Westworld. Right, Where sure. he's just kind of soft-spoken, kind of science agent kind of thing. And he plays the same character here. He's a dodgy son of a gun. Don't bother trying to understand it because you're not as smart as me. He doesn't make <laughs> eye contact with you, the viewer. He has kind of these shifty eyes. He looks down when he's talking. And the feeling is that... Ah, you wouldn't understand it anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? <laughs> and he's right. And that's, he's not and he's wrong. he's absolutely right. He's absolutely <laughs> right. And and so I, uh, I credit the filmmakers for getting Jeffrey Wright on board this project. That's, that's like first and foremost. I credit them with the entire cast. Like I think the four core cast members are so good in this movie. Yes. They all are perfect in their roles. Farmiga is great as the military person. Michelle Monaghan, uh, this is a couple years after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, mm-hmm. a couple years after Mission Impossible 3, and she's just the cutest damn thing she's on perfect. Earth. She is and, perfect. You know, I kept thinking back to what we were talking about in Trilogy, where you always had a problem believing Sam leaped in and just immediately fell for this girl. Right. Yeah. I defy anybody to travel back in time, find themselves sitting across the aisle from Michelle Monaghan on this train and not fall for her within two minutes. I've got that exact same note. Like her ability to create a character so instantly likable. Yes. Is incredible. Like it's just her smile opening with that warm smile is just like, I like this person. Yeah. It's not just that she's cute. I mean, she's an attractive woman, but it's so much more than that. Yeah. Like to just say, oh, well, she's pretty completely undersells the whole thing. The stuff that she does to sell that character, just relentless. Somehow selling a relationship between two characters. Mm -hmm. You can already feel just from her side of the relationship what kind of relationship these two characters had, meaning Sean and Christina. And Christina. Yeah. Yeah. He has no idea who he is. But you get an idea of who Sean is from Christina. You Which know? is how Quantum Leap works. Which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah. She's just great. As little as she has to do, and by that I mean she has to open every scene with the same dialogue. She's repeating herself over and over and over again. Right. And each time she sells it a little bit more. Just the ability to really care about what happens to her. They're very smart in her opening line being, I've made a decision recently. Yeah. 
Right. I took your advice. I took your advice is the line, but the it's so great. Yeah. Because yeah. he's like, well, oh boy. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, what advice? What advice did I give this woman? Right. But it's also indicative of this choosing paths. Yes. You yes. mentioned the it, it, imagery it, it, of the helicopter shot at the beginning and all of these streets and train tracks bearing different paths immediately cut to took your advice. And now I'm doing this thing instead of this other thing. And I think I'll be happier for it. That's really what the whole movie rests on. Yeah, splintering paths, taking a chance. Yeah. Right? I totally agree. And I think, again, just like the opening titles, it just immediately throws you into what sort of movie you're about to watch. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, fantastic performance from her. Right. So as we move through the movie, Coulter... First, he discovers a bomb on the train. Then he has to figure out who planted the bomb, who detonates the bomb. It's kind of a long, drawn-out process. The movie does play to post-9-11 sensibilities for a moment, Mm -hmm. but it also kind of makes a mockery of that. It's refreshing at that point to see a terrorist that is not Middle Eastern portrayed on screen, you know? I'm watching this movie, and I think, like, God, this could come out now. And it's just as potent. It doesn't feel dated at all. It's 14 years old, however old it is. It's like 12 years old or whatever. It doesn't feel like it. Right. And uh, I think a big part of it is that it doesn't play to those tropes and expectations in the post-9-11 society. There is a moment where she mentions, oh, let's not racially profile, because he suspects somebody of Middle Eastern descent at some point. How clever is that scene, too? Yeah. Yeah. Gyllenhaal sits down. And he decides to start using Christina to his advantage, right? So Coulter, Christina are sitting there. And he's like, let's talk about these people. Who do you think is suspicious? Yeah, who looks suspicious to you? He kind of enlists her in this sort of playful way. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. What a brilliant thing. It's really inventive that way. And I feel like the other piece of this is clearly a Groundhog Day style movie maybe we should call cause and effect maybe we should start referring to cause and effect from the next generation when we bring it up as a groundhog (laughs) day style next generation everybody pour yourself a shot (laughs) (laughs) there it is there it was yeah. yeah The reason I bring that up is they've done a great job, and I don't know if this is scripting or directing, but every time he wakes up, the man comes through and takes his ticket, somebody spills coffee on his foot, there's the sound of a soda can opening. These repeated things is like the opening music at the beginning of Groundhog Day. Yeah. And in the same sense, every time he wakes up, we know where he is in the timeline. Because of these benchmarks, we know what to expect next and how is it going to be different this time. Right. Oh, and and of course, the guy that drops his wallet and somebody goes and picks it up for him, uh, Mm -hmm. which apparently becomes more significant than you would imagine. Yes. And that's why I remembered it. The wallet thing, I was like, oh, shit, that's the guy. Right. Like, I actually remembered that part of it, the bad guy on the train pretty quickly And I couldn't remember anything more than, oh, that's the guy. Granted, he's doing this over and over, but we've only got that amount of time to introduce and interact with a character. And it's amazing how many on the train you do get to know in some fashion. Yeah, there's multiple. There's a couple of college students. Mm -hmm. There's the comedian. Yep. 
the comedian who's on, on his there? way to an audition of some kind. There's the businessman who's having trouble with his quarterly numbers. Oh, that fucker? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, let the train detonate, guys. We don't need one more of these guys. I guarantee you the only way in which this movie would be different now in 2023 is that guy would be a crypto bro. <laughs> That's the only difference. <laughs> yeah, okay. I could see that. He has to stake out his environment each time. Let's explore this avenue a little bit more. You know, how much do we actually know about this guy? Let's go rummaging through his bag. Really impressive storytelling from that standpoint. And absolutely riveting. So this movie falls right in my sweet spot. I know we were talking about Across the Spider-Verse early on. That's a two-hour and ten-minute movie. Yes. That... I would say does not feel its length. I think it moves at such a brisk pace. Well, that's that I because like, you're not eight years old. My, that's true. <laughs> my, that's true. I don't my know. My five-year-old did feel, great. Well, I wondered about that because uh, yeah. not to get back on that track, but my son was. So I get a little restless. Yeah, starting to go a little restless. But it was very momentary. This movie, however, a very economical hour and a half long. Yes. Oh, man, that is the sweet spot, baby. Like, you want me to watch your movie, make it 90 minutes. Yeah. I just don't think... I don't know. I like a good two-hour movie. Uh, it depends. It depends. But the week before we saw Spider-Verse, of course, Disney released their Little Mermaid. Right. And we went and saw that. My son and my wife and I all went and saw... The Little Mermaid. And coming out of that, I was like, all right, they took a 70-minute movie and turned it into this bloated 130-minute movie. Yeah. And you could easily, easily trim 30 minutes out of that thing. I hate when I see a movie and I come out knowing exactly where they could have cut stuff out. Yeah. That's always a downer. Like, Little Mermaid should be, at max, hour and 40-minute movie. Yeah. But it was so, so long. And I've heard good things about it, though. It's not bad. No, I would not say that Little Mermaid is bad. Yeah. And this is a real tangent. We are not talking about fish <laughs> and like fish people right now. But two things length. Yeah. Too long and none of the new songs land. God love Lin Manuel Miranda, but he is no Howard Ashman. And it has never been more obvious than when you stack his newly written songs for Little Mermaid up against the classic songs that you know and love. Well, that's... You see, oh, this is a different weight class, man. They are not really comparable. Yeah. That's a conversation because uh, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. His may not fit that movie, but Lin-Manuel Miranda is kind of top. He definitely is, but I got one word for you scuttlebutt and if you don't know what i mean by that watch the little mermaid i have not seen like, the movie so i can't speak to that but you'll watch it and you'll say this was a mistake <laughs> <laughs> well i can see trying to merge two styles that may not fit too well together that is but, that is absolutely but it doesn't what yeah. doesn't take away from lin-manuel miranda and his talent because most of the things that he's done have just been out of this world do love him, and I love that Disney's reliance on him in their new films. I would avoid having him go back and write new music for
for old films. <laughs> yeah. that's That would be my review. Yeah, we're kind of off on a tangent here, but... Lin-Manuel Miranda, oddly enough, folks, had nothing to do with Source Code. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure he was even working in yeah, 2011. Yeah, to the best of my recollection, I don't think he had anything to do with Source Code. Well, I'll check the IMDb, but uh, I think we're a little off base. I did have a quick question as... We're still kind of in the middle of the movie here. There's one of the, let's call them leaps. One of the leaps, he has more clarity every time he leaps and every time he resets this thing. He's, he's much more a man he's of more, action. Yeah, he's more right? like, coherent on what he's supposed yes. to be accomplishing and who he is and why he's there. And it's one of these more lucid moments where there's a pause in the middle of it and Christina's face kind of glitches weird. Yes. And he kind of like puts his fingers up near her face and it's like he's entering the Matrix or something. And then it kind of goes away and you don't see it again. What was that? (laughs) Because it doesn't come up again. So the deal with the time travel aspect of this movie is that his consciousness is not actively existing in real life in the past. That's my take. He is occupying brain space in a person whose short-term memory is about to expire. Okay. That's kind of the thesis of the movie is like he can't change anything. Supposedly. Supposedly. Big quotes there. But of course, Goodwin tells him over and over again, you cannot change the situation that you're in. And she tells him that after he leaves the train follows the man he believes to be the terrorist, assaults him at a train station, and then falls onto the tracks and dies. Yeah, right. (laughs) So that's the craziest, quote-unquote, leap. His conceit is that he saved Christina in that leap. Right, and yet they're like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. She still dies. You're not actually making changes back there. You're just investigating the past, basically. It's less like time travel and more like the holodeck. Going back to Star Trek The Next Generation, it's like you can create a scenario and you can explore that scenario, but in terms of impacting the outcomes of that scenario in a historic sense, you can't change anything that's already happened. Right. So I took the glitch to be sort of a problem with the technology itself, that he was experiencing. Mm. He did a lot to jack that stuff up throughout the movie, breaking out of the harness, what have you, but it's all kind of in his head. But not, yeah, none of that is actual tech, though. He's kind of imagining all. It's a way for his brain to cope because yeah. we learn that he's not actually in that situation. Oh, boy. Yeah, when we see him, it's, yeah. it's rough. Yeah, I don't understand that moment, and it kind of feels like something that could have maybe not happened like maybe a misdirect or something on behalf of the filmmakers like it's just sort of there to kind of cause you to question the validity of what he's experiencing for a minute yeah but as the movie comes to its resolution i don't think that's what they want i think they want you to feel pretty solid about where he is at the end of this movie by the end absolutely that glitch kind of punctures a hole in that fabric (laughs) <laughs> I never got it. And um, It's sort of this movie's equivalent to the top totem wobble in Inception. Yeah. <laughs> is this reality or is it not? We touched on it just a second there, but the storyline that runs concurrently with the bomb and those repeated eight minutes is Captain Coulter's true reality. Out of the Matrix, who mm-hmm. is he? What is he? Where is he? 
because he believes himself to be in like a time machine capsule, right? And one yeah. that's breaking down, which I think is interesting. The very first time he leaps back, he sees that the hydraulics in his capsule are leaking. Yeah, and she tells like him, "Don't worry about it." In. You know, yeah, don't, I don't sweat it. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's not that's not important right now. And each time he comes back, it's broken down a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And he wonders if he's supposed to be dead. Yeah, he kind of gradually gets to that, yeah. that sort of revelation, right? Like the mystery. He, he believes, he was like, no, I was in Afghanistan. This is the situation I was in. His mind is definitely being played with, and he's looking for answers in both realities. Yeah. Who he actually is and what are his actual circumstances are just as interesting as his relationship with Christina, which is, you know, even though the reason he keeps going back is to try and stop this bomb, that story is really more about Christina. It definitely becomes more about that. Yeah. The farther along he goes, because he latches onto her and he's like, this is the person I can save. Right. Whether he ultimately can or not is... Some conjecture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Goodwin makes note early on when he says, I was in Afghanistan. She's like, you've been with us for two months now. Right. And he has no recollection of this. He's just as confused. It's kind of similar to Sam's Swiss cheese brain, kind of. You know, I'm not quite sure how I got here, where I came from now. Granted, the reality of who Coulter is, what he experienced, and how he ended up at this project are vastly different than Sam Beckett's experience, I think we can assume. Yeah, yeah. I think by the (laughs) end, you felt like this program has exploited him. He was definitely unwilling because he's he's really only half a man (laughs) at this point. Right, right. When you finally see, when Goodwin finally goes into the actual chamber where his physical body is being held, you see that the entire bottom half of his body is gone. He actually did perish. Yeah. Like we've been led to believe in this bomb attack in Afghanistan. And basically they've kept his brain alive for two months specifically to test this project out. Right. And to find people that are compatible for the technology, basically. And to be fair, I mean, he is a U.S. soldier and he's being given, even in death, a chance to serve his country. I mean, yeah. like, it's not a bad deal. <laughs> By the end of this movie, they lead you to believe that he's been exploited. Yes, Goodwin certainly has a sort of crisis of conscience yeah. about how to leave him and what to do with his body. Which I found and... a little interesting. To be that high up in the program that you're the one interacting with the time traveler it seems like once you're that far along you've kind of bought into this system so i don't it know it seemed a you little think, weird for her to you know how like you get these characters sometimes and they spend time around certain characters and they develop crushes on them because they have these sure. sort of savior complexes yeah I think that's Goodwin. Goodwin was a, a total savior complex, and she fell in love with a man who had his entire lower body blown to smithereens. Right, right. And she was like, sure, I, I will cut life support. Yeah, you. but you're not wrong. It does seem like there would be people that would want this. If given the option. Yeah, it turns yes. out that he would prefer to die and just be done with it. Right. But, you know, there's some of these He's... gung-ho soldiers that would want to continue to serve their country. Especially with a technology that really could save an entire city worth of people from a dirty bomb. He is, to be fair, coming from a place where he's like, all right, you put me on a train sitting across 
from Michelle Monaghan, and now you're telling me that I can't do anything to save her? Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. How dare you, sir? Right. We may have failed to mention, but the goal of the bomber is to to be a dirty bomb in the center of Chicago. And you're thinking, how can they make Chicago any dirtier than it already <laughs> is? Well, baby, how about a suitcase nuke? Well, more than that, an entire van worth of... Uh, oh, that van was loaded for bear, man. Yeah. Like, that van was really something else. Yeah, yeah. The goal here is an altruistic one, or it's, well, maybe not. The director of that program is definitely out for himself as well, yes. furthering his technology. He believes in it, but I mean, like, all mad scientists believe in what they're doing. Ultimately, I think that he's looking at this program as an altruistic thing. He's looking very much at it in the, uh, oh, God help me, Star Trek II lens of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, right? The one in this case being Coulter and the many being the thousands of citizens in Chicago that will be saved. Yeah, he definitely sells it that way for most of the movie, but by the end when he's actually talking to the government about setting up seven more source codes and right. it yes. felt more like, hey, look at me, I'm so smart, look at my program. Oh, it's definitely, you know what I mean? It's definitely about him. Like, yeah, it's, it's all it's, about him, he, I think. It's his project, it's his program, he's the one who's done this, and the people either like Coulter, like the projected down the road, if he's going to get seven more people or what have you, Coulter is just a cog in a machine, like straightforward. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, Goodwin has this crisis of conscience about cutting his life support. And Rutledge is like, what are you doing? You can't do this. Right. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares if we've got this corpse plugged into a computer? Right. Yeah. He's just a tool. At this point, I don't know that it's necessarily a plot hole, but Rutledge goes on about, of course, we can't let him go. What if this technology doesn't work with anybody else? Right. But then he's also said, we'll have eight of them up by next year. Oh, he'll make promises. Yeah, yeah. He'll make promises. He doesn't know that that'll work. Yeah. But he'll make the promises. He's definitely you know, it's like, you got it. You got to secure work. that government money, man. <laughs> but you never heard Al making that argument <laughs> to a Senate subcommittee, right? Oh, we'll have eight more leapers by next year. Yeah. And... Oh, boy, Ziggy, what are the odds we have eight more leapers by next year? <laughs> <laughs> Not looking good. That's about, what, halfway into the movie. And Coulter, he's become more cognizant of where he is and pretty clear in both realities, back and forth. And that's when they start peppering in this idea of multiple timelines. They've done it with imagery thus far, which I think is wonderful. But they start the conversation real gently with Goodwin, asking, are you married? Right, Is yes. there somebody out there that made a different choice? What if we make a different choice? But at the same time, it's also just sort of a conversation about he's having to make a different choice every time he goes back because mm -hmm. he tries something, doesn't work. Tries something else, doesn't work. And every time he goes back, he has to make a different choice. He has to make yeah. a different choice. So by the end of this movie, the effect that he may or may not be having on the past, that's eight to 12 different timelines that he's splintered this thing into. Yeah, at least. You know? Yeah, that we're aware of. And by the end... It's sort of this, like, what do we have to lose kind of situation. He's caught the terrorist, exposed everything he was there to expose. The mission is over. The mission is over, and he convinces Goodwin to send him back in one more time just to see what'll happen, essentially. And he goes back in and gets it all right. To me, it's... I, I, I'm trying to think of, like... There are a few, like, sort of 
pop culture touchstones that I think of where it's like you almost wonder is this character dead and this is like their last thoughts or is this actually happening to the character yeah I think that's the idea here kind of the seeds they're planting so like I think of the final episode of Breaking Bad where everything has gone very tits up for Walter White but suddenly you get this final episode where he gets comeuppance for everything and then dies Mm -hmm. I mean like he's able to exact revenge on everybody in his life that he needed to and he gets everything he wanted and then he dies and I always felt like there was something really disingenuous about that ending Mm. because Walter White's not a character that deserves any of this right but there's something there and I always thought like did he die in the cabin and this is just sort of a postscript in his life that he's just kind of imagining it also well it's not not we know that (laughs) now but digging back farther I think of a movie like All That Jazz which was uh, the Roy Scheider movie Bob Fosse directed it was pseudo biopic but Roy Scheider's character who is based on Fosse ends up dying at the end of the movie And the last 10 minutes of the movie are this huge musical spectacle that he's basically imagining as he's dying. Mm -hmm. And you start to wonder, is this just something that his, like, because his last leap, Coulter's last leap, is where he goes back and just does everything. He chains the terrorist to the wall. He disarms the bomb. He gets the girl. He makes the comedian make everybody laugh everyone is happy at the end, right? Right. And it's like, you got to wonder, is this just Coulter's death throes? Right. Or is this something that is actually happening? The movie, I think, makes a pretty good case for this being like a real splinter reality that he's just kind of proceeding on into. Like like Life on Mars, that the British television series. Yes, oh man, yes, yes. Same same thing. Same kind of scenario, yeah, I love that series. But things work out as perfectly as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. And seemingly the only casualty of that reality is Sean <laughs> Sean's right. consciousness. How does this movie end? Is that a parallel world to the one that we began in? Or did the initial timeline cease to exist? I really do think, given everything the movie presents us with, both narratively and visually, mm-hmm. that... I think we can take that ending at face value. Yeah, probably so. I think that we can assume that Coulter continued on. And there's one big moment that sort of solidifies that for me. And that's that in this reality, in this final leap back, Coulter sends a text message. Yeah, an email. To mm-hmm. Goodwin or an email or what have you. Right. There's sort of a <laughs> sort of a sequence of questioning that Goodwin uses to kind of pull Coulter back out of his days. Right. Coming out of these time jumps. And he emails her that entire sequence. So she knows it's legit. And he says, listen, I am part of this experiment. You're probably working on this. You've probably got a Coulter of your own. Just know that it worked and and all of this stuff. Then we see that from this alternate Goodwin's point of view. Right. The fact that we see that event from Goodwin's perspective and it is not relegated to Coulter's perspective leads me to think everything we're seeing should be taken at face value because this is a different point of view from a different character who is not Coulter. So in the final timeline, Coulter's consciousness now exists in Sean Fentress's mind. 
right? Yes. So Sean Fentress is the one casualty of this timeline where he ceases to exist and has been replaced by Stephen Coulter, right? He, he's better off. Let's let's just face it. He's be- I don't know this guy, but he's better off. <laughs> so there are now two Stephen Coulters in that timeline because... Right. There's the consciousness in Fentress and there is the actual body awaiting deployment as part of the source code project. Right. Right. Because from their perspective in this final timeline, he saves the train. So right. there's, there's no, no need to use So it. there's no need to use <laughs> yeah. him in the first yeah, place. Like it hasn't been used yet. Right. Exactly. So like you said, it's basically a Quantum Leap movie. But even just last episode, you and I discussed the idea that Quantum Leap cannot work with multiple timelines. Right. Oh, absolutely. Why do you care if you're splintering timelines instead of healing one? Yes. Are we wrong? Um. Why can't we just be happy for the people that are in the new timeline? Well, I think I think in this case, you can be, right? Even mm-hmm. if the person that's in the new timeline is only Coulter. Like, he earned this. Like, he earned the right to be happy, even if this construct is just something that exists in his own head. I feel like the two main, quote-unquote, timelines in this movie, being the last one we're presented with and the prime timeline, both have happy endings, ultimately. Yeah, the prime Um, timeline gets what they were looking for in the first place, which is to stop the dirty bomb from going off in the middle of Chicago. Yeah. The final timeline... They get everything they want, and again, Sean Fentress is the only one who ceases to exist. Which, again, we're okay with. Well, I don't even know this man. No, I don't know this man. What about the rest of what is he going to go live Sean Fentress's life? Oh, man, he's going to regret I mean, that because Sean Fentress on. was a school teacher. Yeah, exactly. Boy, he is going to regret this, guys. Oof. Well, kind of feels like he and Christina are going to go off and do something of their own because she's, she's going to go travel the world leaving. or something, right? She's leaving. She's going to Europe, and I believe he's going to go with her. Far enough away from any real life that Sean Fentress had, but whoever his best friend is is like, man, I've been ghosted. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to my buddy? I just kind of wonder if we're okay with the happiness that comes from this timeline and that timeline if our new series does go into splintered multiverse as we expect it to do yes is that something that can work after all and we'll just my thought is that the show is not going to be that thoughtful about it <laughs> it's going to be a shock value you know it's going to be a surface value it's surface gonna, it's level be a surface value spectacle thing and i don't think it's going to dig deep and even i mean like source code i wouldn't call it a deep movie, but I think it does manage to address some of these sort of existential questions in a way that I don't think New Quantum Leap would, if given the playing space of a multiverse. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What I'll say is I will be very interested to see what they do with it, because I don't think it's a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It just seems curious that the last time you and I got together, we talked specifically about how Quantum Leap can't work with multiple timelines. Well, the whole concept of Quantum Leap is based on changing history. Right. And if you can't change history, you can only create an alternate history. Where? Then what's the point of any of this, right? Right. That's the problem with old Quantum Leap. Because one would think that there is already 
a timeline where that bad thing didn't right. it happen. Didn't, it didn't require you to go back. Like, that's the way parallel universes work. You're faced with a binary option, and instead of going left, you go right. Yeah. Yes. If your goal is to keep somebody from marrying an abusive husband well there's already a timeline where she didn't right so going back and saving this version of this person that doesn't help anybody but somehow maybe it's we'll different. build towards some maybe we'll build towards a like crisis on infinite leaps <laughs> oh god where the quantum leap multiverse that is introduced in season two collapses into a single unified universe <laughs> <I'd>... <laughs> that seems like a long way to go to achieve absolutely nothing <laughs> <laughs> awfully awfully messy i just find it interesting that this movie basically addresses the exact thing that we said wouldn't work in quantum leap and it works for this movie if if, if a quantum leap movie existed in a vacuum which i believe source code is right we're never going to get a source code too we don't need a source code too we don't need one but by the end of this movie, <laughs> I was really wanting one because I really loved this movie. By the end of this, I was just like, wow, this was a lot of fun. Gives oh, yeah. you just enough to think about. I mean, it's not uh, a Christopher Nolan movie, but there's no, enough but to I think, think about. I think there's a degree to which Christopher Nolan movies get off on being pretentious a little bit. There are Christopher Nolan movies that I see that I don't feel like are as clever as Christopher Nolan thinks they are, <laughs> even though I love his movies. Yeah. Source Code, I would put it in this sort of rare area as one of the best sci-fi movies of the last 20 years. And and when I'm putting it wow, up there with good. those movies, I'm thinking of movies like District 9. I'm thinking of Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Uh, movies like that. What's that one with Jeremy Renner, the communication with the aliens? Oh, uh, Arrival. Arrival oh, and Annihilation Arrival was is... the same year. That was really good. Jeez, yeah, those were phenomenal. And I'm putting those up there on that sort of modern sci-fi pedestal. I would put Source Code up there. Wow, that's them. that's high praise. I mean, I really enjoyed this movie. I came out of it really wanting more of this. I want more of this thing. And... I kind of looked it up, and as soon as that movie came out, they greenlit Ripley writing a source code, too. <sighs> he was supposed to be working on it, and I guess it just never came to fruition. If, if you IMDB it, it's still, quote-unquote, in production or something of that. Oh, so, that's never good. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen. But the concept in and of itself, replacing somebody's consciousness in the past in order to avert some kind of disaster, does it work as a movie without the mystery aspect and i'm not sure that it does if you're looking at a source code 2 and you already know what source code is there's got to be a new there's angle there's got to be another angle that gives it some kind of moral story and something to create a dichotomy there so that there's kind of two concurrent stories running that gives you a reason to care about your protagonist yeah i think that's the first question in any sort of exercise like this is okay but why yeah right why source code 2 yeah I do think that would be a very hard question to answer. Right. I would not envy it. <laughs> yeah. Anybody trying to come up with this, I would not want to be the person out there writing source code too. I would not want to be Ben Ripley. Right. I mean, it could work as like action schlock, just like random time cop action movies. Sure. But yeah, but that's not what this is. It's not going to be. Yeah. It's not going to have the same impact. And you'd have to find some kind of moral dilemma to include with it. And the only thing that came yeah. to my mind is this whole thing I just mentioned about what happens to Sean Fentress. And there's something there. 
if you've already implemented this idea in the first movie that yes you are creating a new timeline and you're replacing that person in a timeline you know there's some morality there especially if you're going to stay there forever because sam beckett what if we have... leaps out yeah go ahead. you know sam sam and ben they they all leap out and let the person live their life yeah. this person yeah. leaped in and took over Despite whether or not Sam actually wants to see trilogy part two, oh, <laughs> but um, what if what if the sequel was about a a scenario where source code became voluntary, like engaging in source code became yeah, voluntary? Yeah, I didn't see why source code necessarily needed a a half conscious, you know. Like, you couldn't convince a living person to do this. You had to go get a corpse. Yeah, right. Like, I, is there, they never mentioned any reason that it had to be like a RoboCop scenario. Just a good, just a good soldier, man. He's a good soldier, like Nuke. Yeah. In the comics. Yeah. I mean, but it, it really does. It's sold Gotta like. Do a, it for our boys. <laughs> give me your red. Um, oh, God. <laughs> kudos to you if you get that reference. Yeah, uh, good job. But, uh, guys. But yeah, it's sold also as, as like a RoboCop situation where, you know, but only visually, like they never talk about the idea that it had to be this mutilated leftover bits of a soldier. Like, right. why couldn't right. it just be somebody's brain? Like, I don't... And then they could come out of it and be like, hey, whoopee. Yeah, I'm back. I, I feel like that's, again, Rutledge's kind of Maybe that's his ownership goal. over the whole thing made manifest, right? It's like this is just a component part. It's like a CPU being plugged into a computer. It's like, I don't want something with free will. I want something that I can plug in and just utilize. Yeah. Right? I think there's something there. Is I guess what I'm saying. Like, yeah, there's no reason sort of it couldn't tug, be voluntary. Tug between free will and Rutledge's control over everything. Um, there's definitely a story there. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, like wrestling you know, with, with his, yeah, control over a person that, that's volunteered that's, that's for a where, program. Yeah, that's where you have to. That's where a sequel has to go. I think. I, I don't think just having another incident that a. Um, that a, well, a, 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 I don't know what you call them, a leaper, a coder. I don't know. It's not a coder, obviously, but <laughs> I think, but you know, I think it may a be time displacer goes back and has to adjust. It's just more of the same, right? It's, I mean, what if we split the difference between our two ideas being something of the nature where whomever has volunteered for this program is super unhappy with their own circumstances and ends up mm. leaping into somebody whose circumstances they'd prefer to have. And they decide, nah, I'm just going to stay here. Yeah, right. Ooh, all right. Okay, so I said a second ago that I would not envy Ben Ripley having to write this. I think we're in good shape now. I think we can... <laughs> There's something there. <laughs> just think, a little spitballing. Something. something else I really want to bring up. Though. Okay. We're winding down a little bit. Yeah, sure. And that was the very explicit connection to quantum leap in this movie that we have not talked about. I was going to say the facing mirror images that were not his own is the very first explicit. It's a very big one. Okay, what are yeah, what are, But there's an explicit one, there's an explicit connection and it's even deeper than what I remembered. Okay. You teased um, this last week and I assumed it was the yes. mirror thing at the beginning, so it's not. No. Okay. No, it is not. So there's a running thread through this movie about how Coulter is trying to contact his father. 
Oh, yeah. Coulter Stevens wants to reach out to his dad. You find over the course of this that the last time Coulter spoke to his father, it was very, very contentious, and he wants to reach out in some way, smooth things over. And that conversation doesn't happen until this last magic leap back where he kind of corrects everything and he's given the freedom to call his father. And, of course, he can't really say, oh, hey, dad, because he's calling, again, from the body of Sean Fentress. And so he presents himself as somebody who fought alongside Coulter. Right. And uh, Coulter's father, you never see him on screen, but the voice is Scott Bakula. What? Absolutely. Scott Bakula is the voice of Donald Stevens in this movie. No shit. And when Coulter says... As Sean, that I served with your son, Coulter, what's the next thing out of Donald Stevens's mouth? My name is uh, Sean Fentress. Who? I served with your son, Coulter. Oh, boy. It's, uh... I'm sorry it's taking me so long to call you. Sometimes it just takes a while to figure out what you want to say. You know. Ah, don't be too hard on yourself. I imagine it's not an easy call to make. Oh boy. <laughs> and that folks I do remember is that. How I, that is how I know Ben Ripley wrote this because he's a quantum leap fan. Yeah. How about that? So that was one of the things I noticed the very first time I watched this movie was I think that was Scott Bakula's voice. I was watching the movie, and then I watched the end credits, and it's like, there he is. Yeah. And he even drops an oh boy. Yeah. I was like, that is not accidental. Nobody did that accidentally. That conversation definitely mirrors the one that Sam has with his dad in the uh, pilot. Absolutely, yeah. It's very much the same thing. They hadn't had a chance to say goodbye, and, and one of the two parties was dead. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's Wow. That's a, I did not know that. That is a cool, maybe the coolest little tidbit Easter egg thing about this movie. But that's certainly why I thought this was a good movie to talk about first, as far as Quantum Leap adjacent projects. Sure. A very direct link right. between Quantum Leap. And I Leap. feel like we'll probably branch out from here, try and do some other sci-fi movies that are maybe time travel related. You know, in the future, as we continue to do episodes, we can get a little more broad with it, but this is a good way to step in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What a great movie. Yeah. What, what a solid, solid movie this is. Even ending with the standing in front of that strange sculpture in the middle of the city... That just kind of the shows, bean. yeah, the shiny bean, yeah. yeah. It just kind of shows like warped reality. The train passing the freight train is used mm -hmm. as one of those benchmark. You're almost out of everything. time. Well, yeah, that. But by the end of the movie, they show those two trains pass safely, and you know, yes, it's a visual cue that, hey, the story's over, things went smoothly, and everything's continuing on, and it's just. Just when something comes together so nicely, it's surprising to not see those creators have similar success in another thing. Yes, you know, like yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I would say like this is a movie that was designed to be a movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, this isn't a book that was 
designed to be a novel and then adapted into a movie. It wasn't like a movie that was adapted into a book. It was like, this was designed auditorily, visually, plot-wise, to be precisely what it is. And it's just very serendipitous. Yeah. Everything just kind of came together for this particular project. And like I said, there's plenty of visual storytelling in there. There's a lot of heart. Monaghan is just incredible. You want her to be happy. I wonder how she's doing in real life. Like, I want her to be happy as a person. (laughs) I have to believe she is. We'd all like to be happy, wouldn't we? (laughs) I think she made the right decision in the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, what was that? She's, uh, she's... Left, she left Ethan Hunt, and she's like a Doctors Without Borders kind of thing going. You right. know, I think she, she's good. She she turned out. She's all right. right. Yeah, I like her. I like her a lot. But yeah, great choice. Good movie. Next episode, we're gonna subject ourselves to a fan film. Oh, I don't God. know if you Are remember we, the, is that the the, the oh, schedule, man. Brian. But oh, we agreed man. on this. No, I was gonna ask you. I was gonna ask you. I didn't look. <laughs> beforehand and i was gonna say do you remember what it is and you do do. and now i do and oh boy (laughs) indeed if you want to watch it before the next episode folks there is a fan film called a leap to die for available on youtube and die spelled d-i so guess what it's about (laughs) the death of princess diana and it is a quantum leap fan film and uh we're gonna watch it like it's a regular episode and um, give our two cents. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a doozy, I think. <laughs> but see, like, what if it's amazing? I mean, it might be. So here's what I want to do with okay. it. Okay, I want us to watch it and then independently figure out where it falls in relation to season one of New Quantum Leap episodes. Ooh, like, is it worse than or better than? Say uh, paging Doctor Saul. Yeah, you know, right. like right. That's where we're starting. Okay, well, we can we can go down that road. There's a series of Star Trek continues. Have you ever? Oh yeah, like, I mean that that's fan film. Some high quality stuff though. That yeah. is like canonical season four for me. They got most of the, like they got all kinds of actors involved. It's insane. In that. that is a really good yeah. series. Anybody that hasn't seen Star Trek continues, go check that out on YouTube. Despite the fact that. The guy that made that's kind of a sleaze bag, from my understanding, which really kind of ruins things. Well, I mean, like you know, there's more than one person involved in the creation of things. You can do with like two or three sleaze bags. Yeah, but this happens. This guy happens to write, direct, and play Captain Kirk, so it's a little okay. <laughs> yeah, so he's kind of a sleaze, <laughs> and bag, he's kind folks. of a sleaze bag. <laughs> but if you're able to separate the artist from the man, it really is an incredible take and a great bridge to the movies and everything that you would have wanted out of a season four. So, a leap to die for. Hey, maybe this could have been the revival we all wanted. We'll find out. We're going to find out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Until then, folks, feel free to reach out. The email address is, of course, oboyqlpod at gmail.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y-Q-L-P-O-D at gmail.com. Don't write to us until you've watched Source Code, though. Like, like definitely watch Source Code first. I want you to really have your priorities in order. If you haven't seen it, please do watch it. Right. Uh, you can also find us on that grueling hellscape that is Twitter. Um, I'm at Captain Byrne, C-A-P-T-N-B-E-R-N. And I'm at Action Nate. 
Yeah, thanks for listening, folks. As always, we'll see you next time. I'm Brian. And I'm Nate. And we'll be here in the waiting room. But the other thing that I did this week, media-wise, I rented out of the library the complete Rocketeer. Have you read the Rocketeer? Like uh, Dave Stevens' Rocketeer. Yeah. You've yes. read that? Yes. Do you like that? Yes. Really? I do. Oh, I was yes. so disappointed. Really? I think the art is wonderful. I love the artwork. Oh, the the art is the great. The art is yeah, great yeah, yeah. and the the uh the character is fun. Like the idea of the character is fun. But Cliff Secord is such an asshole. <laughs> I mean he is. Yeah, like I, I couldn't I can't and I can't fault Yeah, you and I know like okay, it's the thirties or whatever. And maybe that's just how guys are supposed to act towards their He's women. He's a real macho kind of, like, get your hands off my woman kind of thing. Like, it is yeah, not and like a, my a story woman. for female empowerment. Yeah, it makes, yeah. makes the woman feel like crap. And then her story is completely incomplete. It's like her story is incomplete. Yes. Because she's yeah. just like, I, I, I'm I, going back to him. And he's not even there. And then they never see each other again. I, I agree with that. I feel like... I don't like that book. I got really I feel angry. like there should have been more. Yeah. I feel like there should have been more to it. Um, but I do have the... Um, I actually... I think I have the hardcover. Yeah, um, that's, that's, what I, that's what I took out of the library. And I, I think I bought it again on Comixology just so I could have it to drag around. Because, yeah, mostly it is like Stevens' artwork that is just like... Yeah, it's great. There's... Unparalleled artwork. Yeah, I actually have um, one of my on my stack of movies over here to watch. That's over in the corner. There's only like three movies deep right now, but one of them is a Dave Stevens documentary. Oh no, kidding! Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I I haven't haven't had a chance to sit down with it yet, but um. Well, I like that movie so much, The Rocketeer, and I oh, love the movie, Cliff yeah, Secord yeah. in that movie. You know why couldn't it be that guy? That guy is he was. I, yeah, that Cliff Secord was more indie adjacent, you know, like this sort of like, like fish out of water, everyman hero. He wasn't super macho. He was just sort of out of his element the whole time. Yeah, I think I like those you kinds know? of heroes, you know. Oh yeah, and yeah, and Cliff Secord is inept for sure in the book, but he's extraordinarily misogynistic. He's just a gaping a <laughs> hole, and like I. Like, I understand, like, perhaps the goal was to write somebody of the time, but it just made me angry. Like, I didn't like him, so I couldn't like the character. That's I really was really disappointed that yeah. way, but... Um, That's really interesting. It might be worth revisiting, because it's been... God, it's probably been 10, 12 years at least since I read yeah. last, so... yeah. If I hadn't just come across it at the library, I wouldn't have picked it. Obviously, wouldn't have picked it up. But uh, I just wanted to see what your thoughts were because I was—it was such a disappointment to because I was like, "Oh, the Rocketeer." They just released an artist edition of that, you know, like the IDW artist editions that are all like those 
big gigantic hardcovers that re- reproduce oh, cool. the the original pages at the like the actual size. Well, like I said, I love the um, artwork and I love the character yeah. design and and I really enjoyed the movie, you know, like it's just ugh. You should check out uh you should check out some of the uh like IDW did some additional Rocketeer books in the last decade. Mm-hmm. A couple of them were written by Mark Wade too. Oh, cool. Uh, worth definitely worth checking out. One of the coolest ones was a Rocketeer Spirit miniseries. Hmm. Like like um. Will Eisner's The Spirit. Yeah. Okay. And the Rocketeer, like a crossover. Oh, it was cool. It was it was cool as hell. That is. That's... Hmm. Maybe I will check that out. Is it same same yeah. continuity as this garbage I just read? <laughs> I, I guess so. Like, I mean, I don't know. I didn't think about it too yeah, much. It was sure. just like another story. But there was there were a few, there were a couple um, sort of anthology books that came out that were Rocketeer focused, um, and then the Rocketeer Spirit, and uh, yeah, there were a couple, couple others. I think Chris Samney did the art on one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. it, well worth looking into. Yeah, though. like like that's the thing. Like the. Um, I, I definitely got less misogyny out of the <laughs> out of the like more recent stuff. Yeah. Um, and the artwork, like they all, they would always get like top tier artists to work on it. You know. Yeah, sure. It's not farming it out to some schlubs. They like know that like oh Dave Stevens, he's got a legacy to uphold. Right. Here. I guess the one other so. thing I would ask: Do you know if I mean clearly Betty is designed after Betty Davis? Betty Page. Betty Page. I'm sorry. Yeah, Betty Page. Yeah, is it yeah, supposed yeah. to Page. be Betty Page? Because it looks just like her. Yeah, no, I don't think it was supposed to be her. I think it was just like I mean, a, it looks I just like completely her. Completely Right yeah, same like, time. You know, it 100%. pretty much just could I, be Betty Page. <laughs> the reason I say I don't think it was designed to be her specifically is that, like, the Betty Page estate controls her likeness so much that I don't think oh, he they have couldn't have gotten away with it. With it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just so I think it was just designed to be like an homage more than anything sure. else, but yeah. yeah. All right. Good looking woman though. Yeah. That Jennifer Connell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, everything about that movie is so much fun. Um Oh yeah, that movie rules. Yeah, it really does. I've tried to convince Miles to watch it on a movie night. Um that's one of the movies I try to sell him on. There's not enough uh, action like, in that for a kid his age, I don't think. Yeah, I guess not. He just likes jets and shit, so. Well, there's a jet, rocket definitely pack. a rocket pack in there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're supposed to see, they were, I think there's a sequel in the works, too. Yes, like a t- there is. Like a Tuskegee they... Airman or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be really interesting, too. Yeah, just give it to me, man. Yeah. There you go. I'll watch it. I'll show up.